folks who are filing in for joining us this morning and also folks listening afterwards. Uh, this is Colin Schatz. I am Seth Partnow uh, from The Athletic and other places as well. I am joined today by uh, my, my good friend and athletic colleague, uh, Fred Katz, where we are going to talk about something that we've been talking about on live pods since, I think, 2014, which is um, teams blowing winnable games uh, <laughs> in crunch time and wondering what the coach is doing. Uh, going back to our... <laughs> I'm going back to our Clipper blog live days, wondering uh, what, why the, the 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 Clippers melted down in a, in a first round series again. Um, Fred, how you doing? That's not true. That's not true. Yeah. Sometimes it was a second round series. That's true. That's fair. That's a good point. Well, but no, it was it was a game in a first round series, even if it wasn't the, the series itself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, yes, I, it's very true. So, uh, how you doing? Thanks for coming on. Uh, I'm great. Uh, I'm ready to talk to the Knicks. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So uh, you're great. The Knicks are blank. Knicks are not great. Not Knicks great. Have been, Knicks have been better. Uh, Knicks, Knicks have been better. I think last year went a little better than this year. Yeah. So let's – both you and my nerder uh, podcast partner, Moda Keel, uh, wrote, I think, articles touching on – as we were talking before the show – uh, and we agreed that the two of you hit on some similar themes as to some of the problems facing the Knicks right now. I think uh, he went a little little further in calling for what action happens next. But um, what can you take us through like some of the problems that they're having? And you know, if we're going to divide sort of blame between you know uh, players, coaches, front office, um, you know how how should we apportion that? Sure. I mean, so if you, you mentioned Mo's story, and, and Mo's story, I mean, right at the top, he says there's one person who takes the blame, and it's Tom Thibodeau. And while I agree the criticisms that he levies of Thibodeau are valid, I don't agree with that thesis statement, to be honest. Like, I, I think the blame is much more proportioned across, no question, Tibbs gets some of the blame. But I don't think you can look at the season that Julius Randle is having this year and say, oh, that's only because of the coach and how he's being used. Him not running back on defense, him getting back cut constantly, him uh, you know, not initiating the offense until 13 seconds are left in the shot clock, that has nothing to do with him. That's only on the coach. I don't think any reasonable viewer of the Knicks can say that. Uh, I don't think any reasonable viewer of the Knicks can say that uh, – the Kemba Walker signing has worked out or that the Evan Fournier signing made him worth the money um, or that, um, you know, some, you know, the, the, the disconnect in the Cam Reddish move, which I think is a conjunction, you know, it's a conjunction between the front office and the coaching staff. I think there's blame to go around there. Uh, so, I mean, I think, I think there is blame to go around on players on front office and on the coaching staff. And if you look at what's gone on, Recently, they've lost 13 out of 16 uh, in their last seven games. Three times, they've blown a lead that was at least 21 points. They blew a 21-point lead to the Lakers. They blew a 23-point lead to the tanking Trailblazers, who are apparently not tanking at all and are just awesome, I guess, because I've won four in a row. Uh, And then they, uh, to close out the All-Star break, blew a a 28-point lead to the Nets, and that was the Nets without Kyrie, without KD, without Ben Simmons, without Joe Harris, obviously without uh, James Harden, 
and uh, Cam Thomas goes off and they blow a 28-point lead, in which they were up. It wasn't like a 28-point first quarter lead. Like, they were up 18 in the fourth quarter in that game, and, and they lost. Uh, they've got a tremendous problem holding on to leads. The fourth quarter offense specifically is a massive problem. Uh, they they kind of just run the same play where Julius Randle sets a screen, forces a switch. He goes into the high post on the left side. Point guard dumps it off to him. He operates, you know, one-on-one against the mismatch, and it often ends in just like a, a mid-range jumper. And, and, yes, that's a Tibbs thing. That's a Randall thing. I'm sure we'll talk about all of it. Uh, but but it's – the defense has been problematic uh, at moments. It was really problematic in Oklahoma City. Uh, they're just they're, – they're not playing like a good basketball team, and, and they now have the record – to reflect that twenty-five and thirty-four going into the break. That's a, that's that's a lot to to digest. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this team is a lot to digest. Yeah, it is. Um, so I don't even know where to go from there. I mean, I guess we could start with 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 Julius Randall. Um, I think, I mean, it's been talked about a lot, but I think every pretty much every reasonable observer expected him to not duplicate the season he's. He had last year. Um, I think that I don't think many people um, anticipated him having what is, um, is it fair to say this is one of the worst seasons of his career? Um, I I don't think that was something that, that was widely expected. Um, What's, what's gone on there? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think that's a good perspective of it because what a lot of people, the term that a lot of people have used for Julius Randle so far this season is that he's regressed. People say that a lot. Uh, you know, after his most improved season, Julius Randle has regressed. I don't think he's regressed. I think he's worse than he was in his average season before MIP. I mean, you look at, for example, the effective field goal percentage. It's the lowest it's been since his first full season in the league. His effective field goal percentage right now is is under 47%, which for a guy who controls the, the high, you know, such a high volume, and that's extremely detrimental, especially when your number two volume scorer in RJ Barrett is a guy who hasn't been particularly efficient either. So now you've got, wait, wait, RJ Barrett isn't particularly efficient. That's news. Oh uh, yeah. I forgot. I'm talking about the RJ Barrett. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Number two guys should be Alex Caruso, right? Yeah. So, I, I, <laughs> oh boy! When, when you got two guys eating up that much offense, that many shots, and just generally taking that much control of the offense, and Randall is a is a pretty he's, he's a high turnover guy for his role too. You just you're just giving away a lot of possessions, uh, and with Randall specifically, I mean, ultimately it starts with the jump shot. It, it's it's been a bunch of things, but it, it starts with the jump shot. Last year. The reason he won most improved, first and foremost, was just the the incredible increase in accuracy in his jump shot. He, he shot 41% from three when he was never a three-point shooter. He was taking five attempts a game when he never took that many. He was hitting ridiculously difficult mid-range shots. He was one of the better mid-range shooters in the league, shot 40-some-odd percent from there. This year, I, don't know, I haven't checked the numbers in a couple of games, but he's like 30 from three. He was 29 from mid-range last time I checked. He is the worst high-volume jump shooter in the NBA, like, by far. 
it's it's not it's not even close. You look at the other guys who take the amount of jump shots or even close to the amount of jump shots that he does, and they are all way way better than he's been this year. And it's just it's just extremely difficult to overcome. Now you add in the fact that you know habitually, I think he's been a worse passer. He's not playing with the pace and the energy he did last year. One of the Knicks' biggest problems offensively is they just don't get into their offensive sets. Like, they just they, – they don't start them. Uh, and I wrote a story about this a few weeks ago about just how almost lackadaisical they are getting into their offense. There's so many plays where they don't initiate their offense till 15, 14, 13 on the shot clock. And then they're rushed. Uh, and part of that is Randall. And I, he has actually made a conscious effort to change that over the last, I'm going to say, two weeks, two and a half weeks. Uh, it changes in the fourth quarter, though. It tends to revert. And part of that is the fact they don't have a point guard. They put Alec Burks at point guard, and Kemba Walker has been really not good. And, and that also comes back to the front office. It's like they just they don't have a point guard. Uh, and, and so it's it's just been really tough on Randall this season. And part of it is him and part of it is roster construction and part of it is Tibbs. And uh, I mean, what's your perspective of it with Randall specifically? So, so there's, I mean, I, I the, the, certainly the, the pace thing, the easy offense thing. I mean, that's something that, that I, that I, I harp on a lot. I mean, it's, it's empirical that basically every second you get into your offense early, earlier you get into your offense is worth the point of offensive rating. So if you're getting in, like you're you're basically, you know, if, if they're if the average team gets into it at 15 and they're getting into it at 12 or whatever, that's costing them three points per hundred. That's give or take eight wins right there, just by being, like as you say, lackadaisical getting into their offense. Now the actual spread in the league is narrower than that, but they're still. I mean, I think it's fair to say that they're costing themselves, it from that standpoint. Um, my standpoint on on Randall is uh, you you were talking about the the difficulty of his shot making last year. And that was great. Um, and what's happened this year is he is is it seems like he is still for whatever reason his mix of shots is not any different. And normally, when you see someone struggling, they, they you know some of the 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 more difficult attempts, like you don't take heat checks when you're not hot, basically. But whether it's him, whether it's the offense, whether it's the roster construction combination of all three like you said um they just haven't done anything to get him easy stuff and then he also um there, there's been a couple times where as you've mentioned recently he's kind of looked to play faster both in terms of getting into the offense faster but also just just making a quicker decision with the ball i mean there's a i uh, you know the one of the big improvement in devin booker's game uh, when Monty Williams got there was the emphasis on point fiving on making a decision in, in half a second. And, you know, it's an easy joke to make, but I've been saying that, that much of the season, Julius Randall's 5.0ing and he's, he, you know, he's making a decision within five seconds. And that's, and if, and whether it's again, whether it's him or the offense or coaching at points of emphasis, just getting him to do stuff faster seems like it would make the game easier for him and everybody and whether that's being emphasized and he's just not doing it or it's not being emphasized or what, that seems like that has not happened. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. And, Leave it to you, Seth, by the way, to make a decimal point joke. Thank you. Thank you. I'm moving um, the decimal point joke. I mean, one thing I'll add to that, which, I mean, you're, you're totally right. I, I do think the coaching staff has emphasized the importance of that to him for what it's worth. So, but, but to me, good coaching is not saying, oh, you're doing this wrong. Change that. It's finding a way to simplify the game so that guys who are struggling with their decision-making are able to instinctually make those decisions quicker. Uh, and that, to me, is, 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 it comes back to coaching staff. The other thing it comes back to, by the way, is roster construction. I wrote a story. I mean, we talk about the difficulty of his shots. He's not getting to the rim as much as he does in his average season. He, he, he's getting to the rim more than he did last year. The funny thing about Randall is he was like, you know, for his whole career, a bowling ball who just attacked the rim. And then the year that he has by far a career year and wins MIP is the year he actually got to the rim less ratio-wise than he did any other year of his career. He took like 16% of his shots at the rim last year, which was by far a career low. This year, he's been hovering at around 30%, which is really the second lowest figure of his career. But what's interesting is when the Knicks don't play him next to a rim-diving center, he takes twice as many shots at the rim as when he does and the thing is Tibbs is just you know Tibbs really 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 places an incredible emphasis on having as much rim protection in the game as he possibly can so when Mitchell Robinson is healthy he's gonna play and when Nerlens Noel is healthy he's gonna play and if one of those guys is out Taj Gibson is a good pick and roll defender and has actually become a solid shot blocker later in his career he's gonna play and those guys offensively, Taj is starting to step out to three a little bit more lately, but he's not a spacer. Uh, and when those guys are in the game, the lane is clogged up. Mitchell Robinson is hanging one foot from the rim. And Julius Randle, you see moments where he just eyes a help defender waiting for him in the paint. And he decides to just shoot a jump shot. He literally takes twice as many shots when he's playing. Uh, I should say he literally takes half as many shots in the restricted area. Uh, when there is one of those rim diving centers on the plane, on the floor compared to when there's not. And, and to me, that's also a roster construction thing. Like, you know, Tibbs is a known quantity. You know what he values. You know what he doesn't. So if that's the case and you're bringing him in and you make the decision to bring in the guy as a coach who wants to value rim protection and you know that that's the way he's always been and will always be, then you need to find a way so he can – you can have complementary centers, right? And and Nerlens Noel and Taj Gibson and Mitchell Robinson, from a skill set perspective, they they have varying parts of their games and that kind of stuff. Uh, but ultimately, they occupy the same spots on the floor. So if if Mitchell Robinson is going to get schemed off the floor, or if Mitchell Robinson is going to put Julius Randle in a place to where he feels like he can only take jump shots that night from the way that defenses are defending Mitch, then the same thing is going to happen with Nerlens Noel. There's just no complementary nature to those guys and i think that's a roster construction problem too man there's 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 so many things i want to just even just the the lineup stuff it it seems like and this plays into i think one of the main um things that has annoyed me about about watching the Knicks this year um is one of the you say that that just that that coaching a player isn't just hey you're doing that wrong do it um, what's the, what's the biggest lever a coach has to pull? It's playing time. 
and mm-hmm. and if if they're emphasizing for, for Randall to play differently on offense, and he's just not doing it, and then there's no like consequence in terms of well, you're still playing, you're 38 tonight. It, how much emphasis is really on it? And that sort of yeah. ties into you know what the, you're, you're talking about the Knicks wanting to play with pace. There, the, the players who seem to inject that pace the most. Uh, one of them is, is Emmanuel Quickly, and we'll, we'll, we'll actually we can get to that later. But the other is Obi Toppin, and um, whether that's alongside or instead of, um, you know, well, hey, look how like you know you're playing too slow. Look at Obi. Look how fast he's playing. Like that. I'm not a coach, but that does seem a reasonably straightforward way to make that point. Sure. I mean, I think, I think it depends on why you diagnose the reason that it's happening. There are, there are, are there could be various reasons as to why Julie, the, a message doesn't get through to a player. Right. And we don't necessarily know that from the outside. So if, if, if Julius Randall is not getting the message because he refuses to get the message, no, nah, I know better. This is the way I'm going to play. And this is how I want to play. Then I agree with you on the playing time stuff. But if he's not able to execute the message because just he's not comfortable with it or because he's not reading the game fast enough, then then disciplinary measures don't actually teach you something you don't know. You know what I mean? Then there's got to be another way to be able to teach somebody something to simplify the game. And to me, there are certain moments where I, there are certain times where I look at Randall and I'm like, he's just not trying. Like when he jogs back in transition defense. And that, to me, is one of those examples that you're implying. But there are other times where I look at Randall where, for example, there will be times where he runs a pick and roll with someone, he sets the screen, and they blitz the ball handler. They blitz Alec Burks or they blitz uh, Kemba Walker or whomever. And the, the point guard just dumps it off to Randall at the top of the key. Now, there are two defenders behind him, and there is one Nick behind him which means he has an opportunity to attack and have a four on three. Now, Randall is a very good passing power forward. He's able to find guys. He's skilled. He's got a handle, and he's a beast when he's got momentum going to the rim. You would think the intuitive thing would be for him to grab the ball and just go. And now he's got a four on three advantage in the half court, the stuff we talk about with like Draymond Green all the time, right? Uh, And now he is able to just go and create momentum and he either gets a layup or he creates an open three for somebody on the perimeter because, you know, like they they have guys who can shoot threes when they're, when they're open stance. I mean, Grimes is good. Fournier is good. Barrett can hit a catch and shoot from the corner. Like they have those guys. And what you end up getting in those moments all the time is Randall gets the ball at the top of the three point line and he just waits and the defender recovers onto him and then he squares up the defender, and you get one-on-one ball. And to me, my opinion is that that is just an example of Julius Randle just not reading the game fast enough. That's the 5.0 decision-making. And I don't think that's a I refuse to play the way you want me to play sort of thing. I think that's just that Julius Randle is not reading the game as quickly as you would like him to in those moment sorts of things. And I don't know how you get a message through in order for a guy to move at that pace that you want in those sort of situations. I don't know how you simplify it in a way for him to be able to execute it because there are times that we see him do it and it's really good. But I think it's beyond just like a disciplinary, see what this guy is doing, do that sort of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that's fair. 
Um, but the, the, you asked me earlier, like what my perspective is, and it, and it just for whatever reason, like as you said, that they have not found a way to make the game simple. I mean, when you're when you're performing poorly, I mean, th- th- it's pretty easy for you know conscious thought to get in the way, and if you're thinking, you're too slow, and that's you know that's that's sort of universal across sports, and there's a lot of times where. I feel like you can almost see a thought bubble above his head and, you know, and that's, and that's into what we're talking about. Um, yeah. So, Hmm. Where to go next? Where do you think we should go next? Well, I have a lot of places to go. Yeah. I mean, so, so I guess the, 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 like the, 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 the question that I have is, is again, like you mentioned, they do do some things sometimes where, you know, it they, they seems like they do it more often for Barrett than they do for Randall. But like, you know, as a strong left-handed driver, when they run action to the right side of the floor and reverse the ball quickly and let him, you know, attack at a 45 degree angle directly off the catch, good things happen. Um, but it just seems like they do that every now and again. It's like, oh, wow, that was good. And then don't come back to it for quarters, if not games. Yes. Yeah. It's it's weird that they have these moments, and then they just fall into their bread and butter, uh, and their bread and butter is not very good. Uh, and honestly, I don't know why that happens. Uh, that that to me is definitely a coaching thing, not being able to maintain those good moments and string them along for better moments. I have a question for you. If you want to know where to go, sure. Yeah, please. How how so so you were uh, you were. What's the opposite? You know how uh, like Zach Lowe is on Waiters Island. What's what's the opposite of being on a player's island? Is this an RJ Barrett question? Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You're just like you're just like drowning in RJ Ocean. <laughs> okay, so you are yeah you are you are the lead drowner in RJ Ocean. Um, like you're you're there's there's a there's a shipwreck in the middle of RJ Ocean. And not only are you drowning in RJ Ocean, you're you're actually actively drowning other people who are trying to tread water and survive the ship. <laughs> I'm dragging people down. People. I'm I'm yeah, the Davy Jones of 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 RJ Lagoon. Yes, you're like an extremely an extremely dirty water polo player, and you're just like you're just like punching nuts and drowning people. These these innocent people in the shipwreck. By the way, for uh, people who don't know anything about water polo, an extremely dirty water polo player is a pretty high bar. Yeah. Water it's, polo it, is is sneakily the most physical sport in existence. It's it's like un, it's like roller derby but for real. Yeah. No, it is it's 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 the most underrated Olympic sport. It's great. It's really fun. They're the best athletes in the world. But anyway, I digress. That's what you're doing to people in RJ Ocean. And I am curious to know, he had a nice first six games of the year and then just completely fell off. And there was like a month stretch where he was the worst shooter in the entire NBA out of like a very, like uh, with like using very low qualifiers to decide what qualifies as being a shooter. He was like the worst shooter in the NBA and wasn't making anything around the rim and he wasn't making any jump shots and he wasn't getting the line and it was just wild. And he totally fell off. And this last month and a half before he had the ankle sprain, he's been quite good. The efficiency numbers are there. 
He's like close to 50% on twos. He's close to 40 on threes. I think he's 38, 39% uh, since, since December 31st. Uh, he's averaging 20 some odd points a game. Uh, he's had some really, really nice moments. I am, am curious what your evaluation is of this last month and a half and if you think it means anything. Uh, it means something, but it all counts. So this is this is this is not an RJ specific thing, but this is a a young player anywhere thing. Um, is is people who want to be optimists, and, and of course, fans have every right to want to be optimists about their team. But um, since I, you know, I am the I am the lagoon drowner apparently of of <laughs> hope for young players. It um you know fun with arbitrary endpoints like since this date he's done blah 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 it's like yeah but the stuff before that counts also and really the measure of a player is the consistency um and even over this stretch i i I looked it up a couple games before he 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 uh, hurt his ankle and he was still like this this great stretch was still him being about league average efficiency which is cool but if that's like the part where you're like all right this guy's great like it's good. It's impre- it's 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 useful. It's 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 not a it's not the material of like tentpole star. Um, I'm going to quote you back to you. I think on our RJ. I think this is something you said. Um, and this is in relation to uh, like whether you know. Uh, I think we are in agreement that Quentin Grimes is is their um, most has the highest kind of immediate outcome of the Knicks young players right now. Yeah, and, I think, I think and, we and, are. And, and I haven't, and, I haven't like actually voiced that take, but I'm down to right now. Yeah. Um, but I think this is, I think this is you who said this to me, but I'm, I'm not sure is for, for RJ to be good. He's got to be great at what he does for Grimes to be good. He's just got to be good at what he does. Yeah. That was me. Yeah. And I think that's like, and the, the, the stretch we're talking about for RJ it's sort of he's been pretty good, not quite great, and that's fine. It's good. It's it's you know if you put a full season of that together, he would be on my tears list. That's like like you know that's the that's where the for for folks that don't know that's where this the, like this RJ thing comes is I did not include him in the top 125 players coming into the season, and he you know he was like one of the the last omissions, and and people got mad at me, and that's fine. Um, but if he played that way the whole time, sure he'd be on the list, but he wouldn't be on the top half of that list still. So, oh, um, well, let's take a call. Yu Yang, who is a frequent frequent listener, frequent uh, contributor, uh, he usually has interesting questions. So let's see what uh, what what, uh, what his thoughts are. Hello, hello, Steph. Thank you for letting me uh, on the show as always, and thank yeah. you for the introduction. Uh, hi, I got a question for Fred actually. Um, in terms yeah. of the uh, blame pie, right? You did an excellent job doing the blame pie, and I, I agree with everything you said about Julius Randle and everything everything you said so far. Uh, my question to you is, how much does the blame pie go to Jim Dolan, either in the form of one or two things? Um, is, is Jim Dolan to blame for hiring Leon Rose, or is Jim Dolan to blame for maybe interfering with something that Leon Rose wanted to do as a GM, and as a result, that's why the, Lake, uh, the Knicks are struggling this year? So that's my question to you. Thank you for taking my call. Appreciate it. Uh, I honestly don't know. I mean, I, I guess some of it has to always go to ownership because the fact that ownership is the one who ultimately picks or at least approves or condones of every single hire that happens in the organization, whether directly or indirectly. 
So I guess some has to go. I mean, I don't have any examples of a time where Dolan, with, re- with really anybody on this roster, has explicitly said, you have to sign this guy, you have to trade for this guy, you have to give Evan Fournier $78 million. Like, I, I haven't... I have no examples of that. So I don't really make him part of the pie right now beyond just the usual principle that ownership, you know, ultimately ownership is accountable for what happens and how an organization operates. You know, Ian Begley did report a couple of days ago that, uh, you know, uh, William Wesley, who's their executive VP of basketball ops, he, he's been, you know, pushing to Dolan that, that Tibbs is the problem and uh you know there's 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 infighting there and you know that's that's never good a season in especially when you know worldwide west is as most people know him when when west you know was one of the guys who hired the Tibbs and it happened because of their long-term relationship and now a year and a half in there's infighting uh that's that's not the greatest uh but you know, I don't know. I just, I just don't know how much would be appropriate to give to Dolan because I don't really have any evidence of Dolan decisions either way. You know what I mean? Like in the past, it's just like, okay, Dolan meddled in fill in the blank things. So then we have a direct way to grade something. And in this case, I just don't, I can't think of anything that, that Dolan explicitly, you know, was the decision maker on beyond just hiring Leon Rose. And I, I think even, you know, I talked about the roster construction and how it's not ideal, but, you know, I'm a big believer, like two years in, it's just not palatable to change coaches and change GMs every two years. That's just, you can't think of an organization that's been long-term successful changing its coach and its GM every two years. Uh, People wanted Greg Popovich fired in 1997. So, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I just, I, I wouldn't say, like, it's his fault for hiring Leon Rose right now either. Dev? Um, You know what? Let's, we'll take a call, for, another call from Dan here in a second. But after that, we, let's pivot to talking about sort of the front office and the roster and the future a little bit. Yeah. Um, so be- before we do that, Dan, uh, uh, what do you got for us? Hey, guys. Uh, Seth, Fred, I love both your work, so. Thanks for producing what you guys do. But I'm very curious as for both of you. We have wins over replacement player. It's a very interesting metric. I wonder about wins over replacement coach because any other coach would have at least tried going small, put RJ at the four, played Obi at the five, played Obi with Randall, you know, <laughs> tried some of the younger guys. And Tibbs has his merits, but we always, my friends and I always talk like, what if Kenny Atkinson was the Knicks coach? Would they be a lot more dynamic offensively? And yeah, they'd be worse defensively, but they're not good defensively now. So I'm curious how another coach could potentially utilize this roster to make more interesting lineups, potentially more effective lineups. And one, is there a way to like measure that? I'm sure I doubt it. But also, Fred, what do you think about that? You know the personnel and the coaching staff uh, really well. And uh, thanks for hearing me out. Yeah. Um, Seth, you want to take this? Or? Sure. No, I, I, that, that, that's a, I mean, there, there, there's a lot of interesting stuff for that question. First of all, um, measuring coaching from any sort of metric standpoint, super hard. So this is more of a, um, I don't want to say more of a vibes, but sort of a general idea, uh, sort of question. And, um, the, the important thing to remember is that, that, 
that there are different coaches that work well in different situations. Um, and it's, it, this is, this is something that I've, that uh, an idea I've floated earlier this year, and I'm interested in your take on it, Fred, is that Tibbs has already kind of accomplished the job he was hired to do. And it, it's almost a credit to him that he, he got it done in a year. And now like, it's almost, there's no much, there's, there's no more for, there's no more that you can expect him to do based on his, his track record. Like he got them from being a, I don't know. I don't want to say a joke, but but like a, a not a non-functional team to a a at least a functional and this maybe this year semi-functional team with you know some direction in terms of where to go. But now there's there there needs to be some experimentation, some growth, some change, some flexibility. And I don't I, I don't know if any of those words that I just said are anything that would be in the top hundred adjectives you'd ever apply to his coaching career. Um, so what do you, uh, am I onto something or am I on something? No, I think you're onto something. I think that's true. One of, one of my buddies actually made the point to me recently, and I think it was a really interesting one. And I think he's correct. Tibbs actually hurt himself by putting in a coach of the year performance last year. Uh, if, if they were just like slightly below 500 and in the play in tournament, this, and then performed last year, and then performed this way, the same way they're performing, this year probably wouldn't be met with as much anxiety as it's been. But because they're so severely underperforming where they were at last year, then uh, it just feels like so much more of a step back than it would have been had they improved by a lot during Tibbs' first year, but just not improved by as much. I thought it was a good theory. I was into that theory as, as for the idea of playing small and that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I agree. Play small. I ask I ask Tibbs about small lineups all the time. But the thing is he, he gives extremely similar answers every time. So eventually you just don't, you know, people say like, why don't you ask about Obi Toppin? It's like, well, we've asked about Obi Toppin many, many times. And it's the same answer every single time. So I, I don't necessarily waste my time asking about things that I know the answer to. And and the answer is the reason why Tibbs doesn't go small with with Obi and and Julius is because he, I mean, people say he prefers rim protection. It's it's a stylistic preference, whatever. I don't believe that to be true. The line that I use all the time is it's part of his basketball ethics. Tibbs has basketball ethics, and ethics don't change depending on situations. That's what makes them ethics. And one of his basketball ethics is that you need a rim protector on the floor basically all the time. And that's why Mitchell Robinson plays the five, and that's why Norm Noel plays the five, and that's why even Tyler Gibson plays the five and one of those guys is out. And that is just his belief. And because of that, you don't get Obi Toppin and Julius Randle playing the four and the five together because you lose that rim protection. Now, that being said, um, I do think uh, – Something that that makes, in Tibbs's mind, something that makes the decision easier for Tibbs is that Obi Toppin has basically been the worst three-point shooter of anyone in the NBA who takes threes. Like, literally the worst three-point shooter of anyone in the NBA who takes threes. So you can't justify him as a stretch next to Randall because he doesn't make his shots and nobody guards him. And when you leave him alone in the corner, it doesn't doesn't matter 
Uh, it doesn't actually space. So he, Tibbs is mine. You might as well put Taj Gibson in the corner and play Taj Gibson at the five. Uh, and I think with Obi as well, what really hurts him is that with the way that he plays, everything he does is off of motion. It's off of screening. It's off of cutting. It's off of breaking. And the fact that the Knicks just don't have a point guard, Derrick Rose's injury has been so big for him because that, that screening, that cutting, that breaking, it's just you're not going to be rewarded nearly as much when you don't have a legitimate point guard to, to be able to find you off of those screens and off of those cuts and off of that breaking. So I think it's, I think it's a little more complicated than just go small while they just go small. Uh, because ultimately, like, this is just what Tibbs believes. Uh, and I don't, I don't think that's really going to change. Now, I, I'm, not, I'm not arguing against your point of, like, they'd be better if they went small. Um, I'm just I'm, I'm trying to give a, a background as to why it's actually happening. You know? You're just des- you're describing, not justifying. Exactly. So I I mean I guess my res- this is this is like you know after that description and knowing that you're not this is not what you would advocate for or maybe it is but you you've been neutral on that but um I mean I would like you know we're talking about basketball ethic like my my thought was um having some motion is the way you get away you get you you get around not having a point guard. Like you, you, okay, you don't have, you don't have a, like one player who's going to create advantage reliably at the point of attack. Start moving guys around. Like, you know, Obi Toppin, like what's his best skill? He's fast. And that speed can put him in advantageous situations just because he's fast. But if you're just having him stand around, that you've basically taken his best skill and thrown it in the dumpster. So mm-hmm. that's, you know, and that, I think that gets back to a larger point, which, I don't think in today's NBA you can have a coach that's that rigid and 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 barring just superlative over the top talent be a contending level team. I just I I just I that level of like you know the negative way of putting it is stubbornness you described it as as ethic as as an ethic and you know that's that's uh Either way we want to describe it is, is fine, but I just don't I just don't think that works. Like at at the high at higher levels of the NBA, it's like the, the 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 good teams and players are too good, too versatile, too creative to just you know um, you know fastball down the middle and and if their best beats our best, so be it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's extremely fair. I mean, I, can I can I uh... please? read something to you. Um uh Fire away. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna read something. I, I referred to Obi Toppin as a different, more modest type of playmaker. Um in a story like two months ago. And and yeah, I mean I I agree. And what is what does the Knicks offense need? It needs motion. It needs some sort of like vitality you know what i mean yeah it just looks like a slog so often is really what it is and and he gives it vitality and even quickly who has other than this past game before the break has been a tremendous problem for a month and a half i mean he he just had a 17 game stretch where he was shooting 26 percent from the field which is just 
unbelievable. That, that's extraordinary that he could shoot that percentage for that long of a time. But weren't, weren't uh, the Knicks still better with him on the floor than off, even during that stretch? Yeah, he's got the best, best on offs on the team. I mean, they're, they're, I think, like 14 points per 100 better when he's on the floor. But my, my thing with on-offs is if, if you're going to cite on-offs, if you're going to cite on-offs for a player who's great and their bench stinks, if you're going to cite Nikola Jokic's on-offs, okay, and you're like, okay, well, Jokic is great and his bench stinks, so I don't need a just, more of a justification than that for, for the on-offs. That makes sense to me that the on-offs would be that absolutely ridiculous, right? But when you're showing me on-offs uh, for a guy who's shooting 26% from the field and his on-offs are really good, and he's not necessarily making some sort of ginormous difference offensively, he's not, he's not facilitating like crazy. Like, I, I need to see the actual reasoning as to why yeah. that's – like, it, it, it deserves more analysis than just, oh, they're better with him on the floor in spite of his shooting. Okay, why? Because sometimes that's just – lineup construction, and yep. sometimes, in this case, which I believe is true, that number is more of a reflection of how bad the starters are than how good quickly it's been. I think that's fair, but I think I think it, it's, you know, we I, I talked earlier, like the players who, when they come on the floor, inject some pace in the game are are unironically quickly and, and topping. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, I think that that's, you know, like that being worth 14 points per 100 is, is a – massive overstatement, but that's, that's sort of a, a, you know, like even with like, it's just sort of an illustration that even with him not making a shot for a month, like they tended to have better results with him on the floor than not. That's, you know, that's, that's sort of the, all the point I'm making. Not, I like, I I completely agree with you that like, those are tricky to work with because the jump from, uh, correlation to causation is very fraught, but it's it's all but but it does mesh with sort of our uh, more subjective. What do they need and what does he bring? Kind of situation because mm-hmm. it's, it's yeah. like, like you know. So yeah, um, That's fair. but but That's I want. I, I mean, I'm 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 with you. Like if I were, I don't I don't think any of these criticisms are unreasonable. Of Especially considering just how I mean, you use the word fraught, how fraught the starting lineup has been. I mean, that's that's kind of a thing that we haven't really discussed. Just how terrible the starters have been. I mean, you you come through the lineup data and you look at you know every lineup in the league who has played more than 150 minutes together, and the only lineups who are worse net ratings wise in the entire league are ones on Oklahoma City, Houston, and Detroit which are all teams that are trying to lose. And the Knicks are losing, but they're trying to win. And part of the reason why is because that starting lineup just continues to play a vast amount of minutes. I mean, they've played like the second or third or fourth most minutes in the entire league, that five-some. And and even when one guy is out, you know, RJ's been out for a few games. It's like, okay, so they just roll with that same group with Grimes, which is getting which is getting crushed, or they roll with that same group with Alec Burks in place of Kemba Walker, which which gets crushed. It's like when you have four of those guys, and I've looked through the four-man lineup data, when you have four of those guys, four of the regular starters on the floor, it doesn't matter who the fifth player is. They get destroyed. Every single four-man combination is in the red. No matter who that fifth player is, they just don't work. 
and Tibbs continues to roll with that as a starting unit. And and he doesn't make early subs. I asked him about it uh, last game. And he said that he just wants to be able to establish consistency. And that's why he doesn't do early subs. The, you know, Brooklyn starts off the third quarter with an 8-0 run the other night against that starting unit. And there's a timeout. And it comes out of the timeout. And it's the same group. And that's just kind of what he ends up going with. And it tends to compound mistakes. And that's another example of the rigidity and that all kind of comes from the same place of, of what we were talking about previously. So at, at ri- this, this risks like we're like, uh, this just sounds like it, it, we're at risk of, of going back in on the, the blame tibs. And, and I kind of want to get away from that because I think, you know, between you and Mo and all this and the conversation, I think the, the criticisms have been established. Let's, let's talk about, let's talk about the roster. Um, let's. So this, uh, Mo, Mo was on uh, the Strickland uh, pod yesterday and he made, I thought what was a really good point is you know, there's been uh, there's been talk. Okay, Tibbs didn't really want Kemba. He didn't want them to trade for Cam Reddish, but he did want Taj Gibson back. He did want Nerlens Noel back. He did want Derrick Rose back. So it's not like you can say that the front office just ignored what he wanted from a personnel standpoint. Is that is that is that fair? Yeah, I don't think they ignored him, but I also don't think they acquiesced. Though. I think his his voice. His voice was heard, and then they say, okay, here's what Tibbs wants, here's what we want, here's what we're going to do. He was a voice in the room, but not the voice in the room. Which is kind of how it should work, I think, but yeah. Sure, that's why he's so, not president of basketball ops anymore. Yeah, so, I mean, it sounds like, it, it, it almost sounded earlier like you were advocating, you know, the uh, the can't start paying yet first base kind of either in-season or off-season moves. All right, if you want to see more Obi Toppin at the five or Orby Toppin and Julius Randle at the four and five, then you need to not give him the option to do anything else. Is that? Yep. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, that, that's exactly what I was doing. Uh, I've, I've written that. I have written the, I've written and podcasted the money ball example that you just made, uh, which I've seen made in the NBA various times. Uh, I've seen the Wizards make moves where I haven't been explicit when I was covering them, where I haven't been explicitly told this is why we use this move. We made this move, uh, but I am certain that's why we made the move, and, and I feel the same way. You know, when I was covering the Thunder, it's like Billy Donovan kept relying on Anthony Morrow. The front office really liked Alex Abrines, who was a rookie at the time, and they played the same role. You know, catch and shoot, sharpshooter, but Abrines was more active, moving off the ball. And, and this was Moro's, what ended up being Moro's last year in the league. And he wasn't hitting his threes anymore, even though historically he was a great three-point shooter. And I knew the front office really liked Debrinas. And you knew Billy Donovan really liked Anthony Morrow because he kept going to Morrow. And I never thought it was a coincidence that the Thunder front office just traded Anthony Morrow at the deadline, at the deadline that year. And was just like, okay, well, I guess you got to play Alex Debrinas now. That's too bad. You know, <laughs> like that that stuff happens. It happens. There are many examples of that stuff happening. And it's part of why I was surprised that they didn't make a deal at the deadline at all. I may or may not have been part of moves where some of the, some of the rationale was take the club out of the bag. Um, Also, by the way, that's a, that's a great example of one of the criticisms that that's often leveled at Tibbs is, Oh, he relies on vets too much. Um, 
him and 20 some other coaches in the NBA. Like, you know, it's, it's, you know, you, uh, if you, if you dip your toe in the water of, uh, of uh, Pelicans uh, Twitter and fandom, um, why does Willie Green trust Garrett Temple so much is, is, is a big thing. And it's just like, well, the main thing the guy offers is that he's a vet who will do exact, who will attempt to do it exactly what the coach asks him to do, regardless of how well he actually performs it. And coaches being kind of control freaks, that's great. Even if it doesn't, even if it doesn't quote unquote work in terms of moving the scoreboard. So like Tibbs might be an extreme example of that, but everybody, like not, not everybody, but a lot of coaches are, are, are guilty of, of that, of that sin, I would say. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Even, even guys who everyone agrees is a good coach. Like I feel like everyone agrees Billy Donovan's a good coach now. He's done a great job in, in, in Chicago. The first vets. He always leaves on vets more. I mean, uh, Doc Rivers is like Doc Rivers is honestly a Tibbs level lean on vets guy. He yeah, I mean, doesn't develop young guys. It, it's funny because uh, you know back in back when we were like desperate for the the we when we were on Clipper Blog Live back in the day and like Reggie Bullock was the guy who was not who was who was not getting the chances. He's like. Mm-hmm. Just you know, hey, they need a they need a three who can defend a little and space the floor. Why not try this guy? And he just never would. And it turns out that's like Reggie Bullock has carved himself a nice career doing just that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, also, it's not. It's not. I I will defend Tibbs for a second. There's no question that he prefers vets to young guys. There's no question. But. People talk about it like he will not play young guys no matter what. Like, Quentin Grimes is going to continue to play 25 minutes. And it's because Quentin Grimes doesn't play like a rookie. Uh, his, his game is really refined for someone who's a first-year player. Uh, you know, R.J. Barrett led the league in minutes last year. Um, and, and clearly, Tibbs doesn't give a crap where a guy is drafted in order to give him playing time. Because Obi Toppin was the number eight pick in the draft, and Tibbs does not prioritize his minutes. I think we can all agree. So he'll play young guys. He's just one of those you have to earn your minutes sort of guys, and it's really hard for young players to earn their minutes. So, like like always, there's a little more nuance with this conversation than where it's actually presented. But anyway, we we yeah. went back to Tibbs when we wanted yeah. to talk about the match. <laughs> um, so. Do you want me to to lay out what how I think the front office is done, or do you want to just just you, offer you? You do it. You do it. Go for it. So I think that the front office realized that last year's was a little bit of 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 fool's gold. Um, and I think you can see that in they basically played small ball and kept their powder dry in terms of their off season. They continued to make moves around the edges to add more young players. Um, they made, uh, you know, all of their signings with the team options on the end. No one except for Fournier has, I believe more than two years guaranteed. So these guys are all kind of um, have multiple windows as sort of usefulness in trades um, and not really any long-term commitments um, I think they maybe they, they probably hoped that that Fournier would be better and 
you know, they didn't really give anything up to get Kemba and, and they were, were hoped that he was going to be better, but that was a essentially a zero cost gamble. So I don't think they're, I don't, I don't think they're happy with how this season has turned out, but I don't think from a long-term build the team standpoint this year has been nearly the disaster that the results are sort of leading people to suggest your thoughts. They did not necessarily, they didn't ruin their future. They still have a surplus of first round picks. They have all of their own first round picks. They have the Dallas 2023. They have a million second round picks. I think they have plus, I think they're plus nine in second round picks. Um, they, they have all of their own second rounders and they, they have nine other second round picks coming from other teams. And they have the ability to create a significant amount of cap space in 2023. And if a great player says to them this summer, I want to come here, I think they, they could they could probably find if it's a really great player, you attach a first, you attach two firsts to and, and you got you got expiring money. You, you can get down to to the max or sorry, to a sign and trade or something like that. If you really are desperate enough, if it's a really great player who you really want, you can you can do it. Teams have a way of figuring that stuff out. So it's not a long-term disaster in that sense. But I do believe there were ways to operate within the philosophy they wanted to operate in without giving out the contracts they gave out and without um, bringing the players they brought in. Because ultimately, the deals that they gave out, while they're not franchise crippling, they're, they're, none of them are ideal contracts. I mean, the Alec Burks one is fine. It's fine and fair value. It's $10 million-ish a year for, for Alec Burks. He's guaranteed this year and next year. That's fine. It's fair value. I think if they were going to trade him at the deadline this year, they could have gotten a second rounder for him. I think if they wanted to trade him this summer, they could get a second rounder for him. And I think if they held on to him until he was expiring and they wanted to trade him at the trade deadline next year, they could get a second rounder for him. It's just that kind of deal, you know? Well, um, so if I may, I, I kind of see the value of, the, your, of those contracts almost in reverse um, in that you talked about the surplus of draft assets. So these guys that are now essentially can be expiring for each of the next two seasons. Um, yeah, you might have to attach an asset, like a second rounder, to get someone to take that contract. And then you have the draft capital that you're going to use to acquire the player you want. But you can mechanically get to so many guys with these, you know, functionally expiring contracts and draft picks. So that's yes. that, that to me, that's that's sort of the the longer term method that 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 you know it's it's probably it's been hurt by the fact that these guys are are neutral to negative value now, given how they've performed. But they're not like none of these deals I, I think are are any sort of albatross. Even even Fournier, he's a good shooting month from being fine. Fournier Fournier's deal is is an overpay. To me, so much of it is the process. Like so I wrote I wrote the trade deadline. I mean they were they were trying to offload Fournier in in a way that implied they just they thought it was a contract they didn't want to have anymore. Uh, they weren't trying to trade Fournier for something great and get something great back. They were trying to get off of Fournier. They made him very available, and they couldn't get anybody to bite, really. I don't know how much traction they were able to get on Fournier. And to me, 
when they gave out that contract, I think the average reaction to it was, oh, that's a lot of money for Evan Fournier. And if you look at the way Fournier has performed this year and you followed his season, every single thing with Evan Fournier is just in line with what you would expect from him, right? I mean, three-point percentage is, is – he's actually shooting really well. He's shooting like 40 from three on a ton of attempts. I mean, they're a really good – three-point shooting season. He's had some big blow-up games. He's had some literally zero-point performances, which is just what Evan Fournier does, right? Like, he is notoriously inconsistent night-to-night, but he's actually quite consistent year-to-year. And if you look at what Fournier is doing, all the efficiency numbers are, are basically in line or even a little better, depending on what you look at, than his career numbers. His scoring averages, you know, you know, per 36 per game, whatever you want to look at. It's it's all just in line. He's just having like the median Evan Fournier season. And if you feel like it's too much money, then maybe you didn't evaluate Evan Fournier correctly before you gave out the contract. Because what he's doing right now is the same stuff that you should really expect from Evan Fournier. So I, I think there's, it's a weird contract to have buyer's remorse on, even if you believe that it's it's too much money. Uh, I think their process was just a little off in terms of the guys they evaluated. Um, They needed more reliability at point guard. Maybe this is more of a, maybe this is more of a hindsight being 2020 thing that I'm letting on, but they invested in two point guards and Derek Rose and Kemba Walker were both in their thirties and have significant injury histories. And the fact that both of them have been hurt at the same time, which has left them with no point guard at all, uh, or Rose has been hurt and Walker has been, you know, just not not good. He's just really fallen off because of his health. Uh, that, that was always a, a realistic possibility coming into this year. And, and that, I think, was a, was a roster flaw. The other thing that I'll bring up is I, I want to ask you about this because you you mentioned the um, the ability to compile these contracts together, which kind of allows you to bring in, you know, depending on how many picks you want to give up, you can bring in any type of contract. You can bring in a max guy if you put together three of these salaries and you tack on X amount of picks, right? Um, here's my, my counter to that, and I want to hear how you react. The Knicks are 25 and 34. They're, they're like 17th in offense or in, in defense. They're way down like 24th, 25th, something like that in offense. They don't look like a team that's on the brink. And they don't look like a team that if I said, oh, they add a star, they're good to go. The East is extremely competitive. If they add a, a, a really good player, I don't think it catapults them back into the top four in the Eastern Conference. The East is too good. I mean, Philly's too good. You know, Brooklyn, when they're healthy, is too good. Miami's too good. Milwaukee's too good. I mean, all these teams are are too good. And so is it even smart for them to compile these contracts together and throw four picks in there if it brings you Donovan Mitchell, if it brings you Damian Lillard, even if those organizations are willing to accept it and those guys get to a point where they ask out. Like, is this team with Donovan Mitchell, like, is that is that guaranteed to be a really good team? Because if it's not, should you be giving up all of your draft capital for that? Uh, and if you shouldn't be, if you're not at a point 
where you should be giving up your draft capital for that, then ultimately these contracts are only purposeful in a vacuum, right? So that's a, that's a fair point. I think the, the more optimistic way of looking at it would be um, when you get down to a lot of the Knicks offensive struggles, it's, I think, especially in an individual player level, I think it's um, a lot of guys are one or two spots higher in the pecking order than they should be. Um, so if, if Julius Randle becomes a number two option rather than here, have the ball every time, make something happen. Does, is that a, is that a way to get better play out of him? I think that's, I think that's a reasonable assumption. Certainly RJ Barrett, um, you know, turning him into more of a, of a spot up play on the break, catch and shoot, uh, attack closeouts player. I think that, I think those, I think that like, you know, fits his skill set. Um, better than kind of trying to have him be a, a primary or secondary initiator. Um, certainly, like you know, having more more dynamic playmaking helps Quentin Grimes, helps Obi Toppin, helps you know, uh, uh, help probably helps Mitchell Robinson be be you know uh, more effective offensively. So that's I think the the um, th- that's I think the, the optimist. The, the other part is just having the optionality to. Hey, Donovan Mitchell, and I, I think I would differentiate between. I think trying to go all in for for Damian Lillard would be a mistake, just from a timeline standpoint. Like you're that's that would be a very that would be a very Dolan next move. I think, um, you know, just given his his age and sort of the recent history that indicates he could be kind of hit, hitting that. Um, you know, on any given night he can go off, but maybe it's not an every night thing for him any, anymore. Um, so looking more specifically at Mitchell or, well, no, we want to, I mean, let's not even speculate about Zion yet because obviously that's been, you know, that, that that's gross, but like, yeah, I think that if I I've never, I'm not even the biggest Donovan Mitchell fan. And if you tell me you can trade three first rounders and expirings for him, four first rounders and expirings for him, does that does that make this team a a, a, a certainly it makes them a top six team? Whether it makes them a top four team, I don't know. That depends a lot on how much of that sort of benefit you get from the from the everyone else, you know, sliding that one spot down the pecking order. So that's that's a tough evaluation. But just being in the situation to be able to make that evaluation and and have it not be academic is uh, is useful. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that is a very fair point. I, I I think ultimately, yeah, I mean I think ultimately it comes down to how much you believe, I guess, uh, that sliding those guys a position down really does activate the offense, um, and and maybe you believe that using them differently under a different coach or different schemes or a different type of offense or whatever, uh, you know, ends up giving a jump or a jolt to the offense too, because that's something that could, that could make a difference as well. But that's, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. I just think, I think either way, that's kind of the question that has to be asked, uh, whether, you know, are, are they ready? Cause, cause ultimately if you, if you are going to make that trade for a big time star, it's going to take all of your picks and it's going to take 
light protections on those picks. It's not like you're doing that trade and you're saying, okay, we're going to give up three first round picks and they're all going to be lottery protected. No, it's going to be like if you're taking on these contracts, which you're just taking for salary purposes and the value of the trade is in the picks, those picks are going to be lightly to unprotected and they're probably going to be swaps given the precedent of other star trades in recent years, right? Like there are swaps in both of the Harden trades. There are swaps in the Westbrook for, for Chris Paul trade. There are swaps in the Drew Holiday trade. There are swaps in the Paul George trade. Like you're going to have to have pick swaps as well in there. And you better be right if after a season that you potentially lose 40 some odd, 50 games, and we're getting way into the hypothetical now. But you 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 better be right if you're uncompetitive and you trade that many lightly protected picks and you trade swaps for a first guy in the door. Uh, and if you're not good and you just traded years worth of draft capital, I mean, that is your worst case situation, right? I mean, that there's 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 a lot of risk there. I mean, yes, but welcome to the NBA. <laughs> you know, it's it's I, I'd like you know acquiring. Sure, I, guess, a- Seth, I guess my my point here is maybe it comes down to also like how much you think you can get out of Julius Randle because yeah. ultimately, when you give up that much, you have to consider you have to decide if you want to, if you consider Julius Randle a guy who's in the door, right? Right. Because because ultimately, you don't give up that that sort of draft capital for the first guy in the door. Like you give it up to the second guy or the, or the final piece. You know, if you're Brooklyn, you give up all that stuff because you already have Kyrie and KD. If you're Philly, you give up all that stuff because you already have, and they didn't even give up that much stuff, but you give it up because of Embiid. If you're uh, the Clippers, you give up all that stuff because trading for Paul George gets Kawhi to commit. Like, that's why if you're if you're Milwaukee, you give up all that stuff for Drew Holiday because you believe he is the piece that brings you a title because you already have Giannis and Chris Middleton and all the other guys. Like if you don't believe that if you believe that Randall is a piece in the door and he's just being misused this year, and don't worry, I am relatively certain that I can bring him back to what he was during his MIP year, then then I guess the conversation changes. But if if you don't think that you have a at the very least all-star caliber guy on this roster today that's just a lot to give up for your first all-star that's fair um you know and that's and i think that's almost the the uh the the frustration with with sort of the the red is like it, it sort of all becomes a, a a circle because the the frustration with not getting to see him in more like you said not not getting to see him in situations where the game is still coming a little easier for him this year so you get a better sense okay he's not the player he was last year that's i think i think that's a reasonable assumption at this point um if but if we did turn him in if he how does he operate out of these other situations that we think that he would get more of if he was the second guy and that you're just getting none of that this year no, no evidence of that either way. Like you don't like, it's not saying he can't do it. It's just, we haven't seen it either way. Um, that's, that's sort of um, for me thinking, thinking about where, where I would be frustrated kind of longer term is the kind of the, the lack of information being gathered 
about about Randall and the young guys and sort of different lineup combos. And that's almost where, um, to bring it full, full circle, that's where like the stubbornness and the rigidity like really is, is costing them, not just this year, which, you know, they weren't going to win the title this year. I don't think anyone did. I mean, coming off of last year, did anyone realistically think that they were a contender this year? Uh, no, no. Yeah. So, I mean, so that's really like, you know, in terms of building towards that, that's really where the, I don't want to say the sabotage, but the disappointment of this year has been. Um, I will say, so again, I that, think that's, that's, that's a very good point, Seth. That's a very I, good point. I mean, ultimately like d- disaster this year is not losing a bunch of games. Disaster this year is losing a bunch of games and not being able to come out of the season without knowing what you have in your young guys, having a better idea of why Julius Randle was successful last year and he hasn't been this year, a better idea of RJ's development, an idea of what the heck you have in Cam Reddish because you traded for him to see what you have in him and you just haven't seen anything because Tibbs doesn't want to play him uh, and he's extension eligible in the fall and he's a free agent in 2023 and you gave up a first round pick for him um, and the rest of the young guys too. So, so yeah, um, I'm with you. If you're going to lose, at least lose in ways that can help you down the line. You, you got to choose either your present or your future. Um, and if, if, if you choose neither, or if you choose your present and your present fails, and you, you, you thus don't help your future. That's the true failure. You can choose your present over your future. You just have to meet your present goals if you do it. Yeah. But, but, but you know, when you choose your present over your future, and then the present fails, it's like, well, now what do you have? No, I think I think that's right. I think this is sort of a um, when people talk about you know teams using their resources well, they're generally are talking about like draft picks and salary. And they aren't as much talking about like game minutes and reps, which, you know, the, which the, the Knicks have not used super well this year in terms of accomplishing either short-term or long-term goals. Like that's like, I like being as value neutral and as blame neutral as possible. I think that's a fair statement. Mm -hmm. Um, Last point. And I think this is, this is sort of, and we'll let you get out of here after this is, uh, I, if it if it comes off that I'm that I'm probably pretty um, positive on this current front office, that's accurate. I think, um, and the way I look at it is, you know, you look at the, the the their their identification of talent in young players. I think at this point, you have to say that they've, you know, small sample, not that many draft picks, but they've done pretty well. I mean, between Grimes and Quickly and Deuce McBride has has showed interesting stuff and. And even even Toppin has has you know sure should we have drafted Tyrese Halliburton but you're not the only one, um, you know um, so I, I'm I, I combined with the fact that they even if the players haven't performed quite as well they were at least judicious in their their ambitions this off season. I am I feel like you know you mentioned earlier you can't turn over your coaching staff and your front office every two years. I don't see any reason why they should be. There's only one of those those spots that that should be it should be getting examined this offseason. Is sort of my is, is is my thesis. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. They've drafted well. Grimes pick, really good pick. Uh, quickly pick, good pick in the twenties. 
Toppin pick, probably a reach. Um, McBride, who the heck knows? He's played well in the G League. I don't know what he's going to end up being. He, he's, uh, you know, he hasn't really played in the NBA minutes. He had a good game against Houston earlier this year, but who knows? I think you say with him, you say he's got a chance. And if you do that from a, you know, a late first, second round pick, all right, we're, you know, we're, we're ahead of the game if we've given ourselves a chance. Cause yeah. so many, so many of these guys get on the floor for the first time and like, you know, pass pick about 25 and you're just like, nope. And, and that's, that is, that isn't the case with him. Yep, and 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 Jacobitis, who they who they took in the second round, has been playing overseas this year, is having a, a really good year, and and looks like he's going to have a chance to come over to the NBA relatively soon. So that's another guy to keep an eye on too, and 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 also is a guy who's like maybe he has a chance. Uh, so I agree, they've drafted well, and especially from a rebuild perspective, that's that's very important. There's no question. So I'm going to let you, I'm going to get you out of here with one last question. And that is, I'm going to ask you to, to, to break out the Fred Katz crystal ball and tell me what you think this team looks like opening day next year. Mm. I think, I mean, I think we're at the point where we kind of with the Knicks have to start. That's where we're looking now. Right. Yeah. 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 For sure. I mean, they, they're going to be underdogs their first nine games out of the all-star break. Like they're, there is, I said this to a buddy of mine who works in analytics. He's an analytics guy for another NBA team, not the Knicks. And I said to him, I don't know, probably two weeks ago, I think the Knicks, I think they could lose 50 games. He was like, there's no way they're going to lose 50 games. I was like, no, I think they could lose 50 games. So he said, let me check this. And he, he ran it through there, like the team's model uh, for projections and stuff. He said, I have it at a one and a half percent chance they went lose 50 games. I said, great. You know what? If that's the case, I, I'll I, I put money on them losing 50. And they still might not lose 50. Uh, but I, I spoke to that guy last night. And I was like, still think there's no way? And he was like, they might lose 50. And so, and so uh, it's just. The remaining strength schedule is really tough. I think they're the fourth toughest strength schedule in the league. They're already nine under five hundred. I, I, I think they could they could drop to double digits below five hundred. Well, I guess they're nine already. So, uh, you know, they they could they could they have an outside chance there of losing fifty with the difficulty of the schedule, and then if they rest guys strategically through the end of the year because they're just totally out of it. Uh, so yes, I agree. Next year, what do I think is going to happen next season? Um, I don't think Kemba Walker will be there. I know he's got another guarantee. Bold. There. Bold. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it'll be a trade. I don't know if it'll be a buyout. Um, if it is a buyout, I don't know if he'll be the first guy in history to get bought out of his buyout contract. I don't know, but he might be. I can't think of another example. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I don't think Walker will be there. I am Matt, I, I, I think there's a realistic, I don't want to say there will be a coaching change, but it wouldn't surprise me based on things I've heard. If there were a coaching change, I think that's possible. Um, I don't think there will be a significant front office change. You know, maybe, maybe they bring in another person, uh, maybe one person leaves, something like that. But I don't think it's going to be like, 
the whole front office is out. Uh, you know, maybe maybe there's one person who's out, one non-Leon person who's out, uh, something like that. But but I don't I don't think there's like a significant front office change. Um, and then I think RJ is there. I think Julius is there. Um, I could see them making a deal that involved any of the other guys on the roster. Uh, I could see them making a deal that flipped Fournier for something else. I could see them making a deal that flipped Burks, flipped Noel. Um, even, you know, Tibbs isn't there. Could see something. Even flips like Derek Rose for something else. Um, even though Rose is, man, we barely talked about Derek Rose. Derek Rose is so important for this team. When he got hurt, I wrote a whole thing about how he is their most important player. And I think it's aged very well. He is he 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 solves all of these these problems, right? Um, so I I think Rose would would probably be there just because he's very good and he's very important with the way they play. But you know, if Tibbs isn't, then obviously that's he becomes a little more easily tradable. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't I don't know exactly what it's going to look like to be honest because I just don't know how depending on how the rest of the season goes, I don't know how they're going to assess things, you know, like if they totally fall out of it and they start playing the young guys and it turns out as you see, uh, you know, the young guys play more, it's like, Oh, maybe they really have something in Obi Toppin if he ends up getting more minutes or, Oh, maybe, maybe Grimes is more than a three and D guy or, or whatever. I think that colors things differently. Um, but I, I could see significant changes below Randall and Barrett, and I could see significant changes on the bench is what I'll say. Okay. That's uh, a lot, a lot that remains to be seen and and really a lot. I hope, hopefully I, that, that the rest of the season is at least lets us learn some things about what they have now. That's, I think I would, I would guess that that, um, Aside from you know the more the more money ballish of Knicks fans, like screw it, lose every game. Let's get let's let's get our best chance at uh, Chet or something like that. Um, aside from that, um, I think that's the that's the mo- that's the most realistic thing for Knicks fans to want to see the rest of the season. Right. No, for sure, for sure. More more important than just tank all the way is look there. Are, there are good ways to lose. There are good ways to win down the stretch, and there are bad ways to win. I don't believe just do everything you can to lose. I believe do everything you can to develop the young talent on your roster. And if you lose and you and your pick ends up getting better, that's great. If you end up winning a couple of late season games because RJ Barrett looks like he hit another level, or because Grimes looked like he hit another level, or because quickly you're starting to develop as as more of a point guard than just a scoring guard or whatever, like that's good. Sometimes fans get pissed about that stuff. Oh, we never should have won that game. But the reason you won that game is because Emmanuel quickly is looking so much more comfortable running the point. That's good long term, you know, like that. But you got to put yourself, you got to put your guys in those positions to actually have those moments. So not uh, not not winning late season games by Taj Gibson going off is what you're saying. <laughs> If Taj Gibson goes off, that's my one exception. Okay. Taj Fair Gibson enough. corner threes have, have become a, 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 a big part of my next viewing experience. Well, okay. I can't think of a better way to end this than with the thought of a Taj Gibson <laughs> corner three. 
Uh, Fred, thanks for taking some time on your, on your Saturday to, uh, to uh, come, and, come and chat with me about what has been a, uh, an interesting season, a bumpy season, a tumultuous season, a, uh, an incident-filled season, maybe even. It's been interesting. Hey, guy heads to the Knicks. They're always interesting. Hey, you know, may you live in interesting times, right? May, may, you have, may you have an interesting beat to cover, and you do. That's very true. So thanks a lot for coming on, uh, Fred. I appreciate it as always. Um, folks, thanks for listening. Uh, we'll see you sometime in the next week. Talk soon.